we were actually first introduced to him all the way back in 1 Kings in chapter 19 as God is meeting with Elijah on Mount Horeb and he gives Elijah a charge and he says in 1 Kings 19 and verse 15, the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you have arrived, and here's the charge to Elijah, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of abel Molehab, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Well, of course, Elisha was anointed as the prophet to be the uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, the follower of Elijah, the successor of Elijah, but that's really the only the only thing he did in fulfillment of this charge. Elijah never anointed Hazael king over Aram, nor did he ever anoint Jehu king over Israel. Both of these kings were anointed during the ministry of Elisha. So Elisha was Elijah's heir and uh, Elisha actually fulfilled the charge that God had given to Elijah. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 9, as we have been in 2 Kings, at the beginning, Elijah or Elisha uh, sent one of the sons of the prophets to anoint Jehu. As the king of Israel. Now, at this time, Israel had a king, but God was bringing judgment unto Israel, and so Jehu is raised up by God to destroy the house of Ahab. Uh, He's actually called of God, and we might call him a messenger of God's vengeance. That's Jehu's charge. That is the charge that God has placed upon him. And so Elisha sends the son of the prophet to go to Jehu to anoint him, to give him this charge as the one who is to go forth and absolutely destroy completely the house of Ahab. So we saw back in chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hands of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. How would you like to be given the charge? Your job, your calling, your anointing is to be the agent of, of my condemnation, Jehu was raised up to absolutely destroy the house of Ahab. So the the first thing we see about Jehu is he's raised up and anointed by God as his avenger. But second, the second thing we see about Jehu is just how zealous he is in carrying out his task. He was brutal and thorough in his assignment, killing every last heir of Ahab. One would presume that his heart was filled with zeal for the honor of God, because he receives this charge from God, and he carries it out with great zeal, with a great sense of passion. He must fulfill the charge that God has upon his life. But we're going to see tonight that it was a fragmented faithfulness. Now, we need to internalize this tonight and be very careful to apply it to ourselves. Because God has raised us up and he charges us with absolute faithfulness. That's the life of the believer. We are not to waver. We are not to go to the left or to the right. And the charges that Jesus Christ gives are very clear. You know, he, gives, he says such things like, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. 
What in the world does that mean? Well, it's simply this. You know, a, you know, this was an agrarian society. They knew very well what it meant to plow a field, how you plow a field, you know, how you hook up an ox, uh, how you put the yoke on the ox, sometimes a pair of oxen, and how you plow the field. And what every farmer knew, that your rows had to be straight, and the best way to make a straight row is to put your hand on the plow, you know, both hands, and look to the end of the field. The far end, that's your point of reference, and you head right to that point. So you put your hand to the plow, you goad your ox into movement, and you head towards that point, and you don't take your eye off of it. That's the teaching. That's the life of the believer. We're keeping our eyes fixed upon glory. We have a, we have a, a reference point. Uh, we, we have a, uh, a, a point in which we will not be distracted. Our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You know, Paul says, but this one thing I do. Uh, he says, I've, uh, I've, I've got my eye fixed upon the mark of the high calling. So that's the life of the believer. And if you take your hand off the plow, if you look back, what's going to happen? So now you've taken one hand off, you've got one hand on, you look back, and that plow is going to go everywhere. And your field is going to be a zigzag. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You've got to keep your eye on the finish, on, upon the, the conclusion. That's the life of a believer. Which means God requires absolute, unfailing faithfulness all the days of our life. And Jesus says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So it's the life of a disciple. What is a disciple? The disciple is simply a follower of Christ. And that's what he always charged individuals to do. Rich young ruler comes running to Christ, says, Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, Well, keep the law, basically. The rich young ruler says, Well, that, that I've done. Jesus says, One more thing you lack. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. It's always, that's, that's always his charge. Come Follow me. But we must follow him absolutely, without reservation, without turning back. To follow him absolutely, that is the life of the disciple. Well, enough of that. We're looking to Jehu tonight. In the Old Testament, one of the kings of Israel who has been charged by God with a task. You must be faithful to the task. That is the charge placed upon you, and you must be absolutely faithful to it. Well, we're going to see tonight that he was faithful to the task, and he did demonstrate great zeal in completing the task, but his was a fragmented faithfulness. In other words, it was not an absolute faithfulness. It was a partial faithfulness, as we will see. So, the text does describe in great detail how thorough Jehu was in destroying the house of Ahab. God commanded that he would destroy the house of Ahab, and he did. Uh, he was very zealous in doing it. So, the text begins to tell us at the very beginning, after receiving the charge, he begins by killing Joram, the king of Israel, the heir of Ahab. But he also killed Ahaziah, the king of Judah. God did not tell him to do that. Uh, now, that said, don't forget who Ahaziah was. Don't forget who his mama was. The mother of Ahaziah is Athaliah, who is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, which means the granddaddy 
of Ahaziah is Ahab. But that said, Ahaziah was not of the house and lineage of Ahab. He was not an heir to the throne of Ahab. So, it would seem that this zeal that Jehu had in killing Ahaziah was more for him rather than a direct charge from God. Perhaps it seems that he was more motivated by his own ambition. We're going to see that Jehu is doing what God told him to do. He's destroying the house of Ahab. But there are times it seems that his motivation is more in shoring up his own reign, doing away with his own adversaries or his own uh, anyone that would challenge his place on the throne, which would include Ahaziah. So he kills Ahaziah too, the king of Judah. Then he executes Jezebel. And I don't know if you're like me. You know, it's probably wrong of me, but Jezebel gets hers, and I go, yes, she finally gets what's due to her. Now, we know vengeance belongs to God, but this is an act of God's vengeance. And so, Jehu orders Jezebel to be thrown from the upper window, and as soon as she hit the street, Jehu directed his horses, and she was trampled underfoot. And we are reminded... This was according to the word of the Lord, and Jehu is acting as God's agent. Chapter 9, verse 36, And he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the word of the Lord is true. So the bloodbath continues as we enter chapter 10. Now, in chapter 10, you know, we're covering the whole chapter tonight. You know, I, I told Pat earlier today, I'm, I'm looking at the text, and chapter 10 is a lengthy chapter, and, and I'm thinking, do I read the entire chapter, uh, or would it be more beneficial in the interest of time to bring some highlights and you know, to, so that we come away with the, you know, the main thrust of what the chapter is teaching us and that's the course I have chosen to follow. Because all we are supposed to know from this is that Jehu is zealous in doing what God has commanded him to do. And he is quite efficient in destroying the house of Ahab. So the bloodbath continues in chapter 10. And he orders the execution of Ahab's 70 sons. Let me read this account. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Uh, these were various offsprings of Ahab. When it says sons, we're not talking about actual sons. We're talking about sons as well as grandsons and perhaps even great-grandsons. And so these were of the house of Ahab. And these would have all been heirs to the throne. So Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote the letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, the elders, and to the guardians of the children of Ahab, saying, Now, when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are all with you, as well as the chariots and the horses and a fortified city. Now, let me pause for just a moment. You kind of get the idea here. God has charged uh, Jehu to kill these 70 sons. really has nothing to do with chariots and horses. So right away you begin to see that Jehu has more interest in this than just the destruction of these 70 sons. And so he says, verse 3, Select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. In other words, Jehu has keen interest on any opposition to his power structure, to his place upon the throne. And so he's commanding these, you know, these stewards of Ahab's sons 
Put your two best sons on the throne and let them stand against me. And I'm going to show you that I'm able to defeat them. Thus, I am the rightful heir to the throne. He didn't need to do this. This is his own ambition. This is his own power thirst. So again, we're beginning to see signs here. It's not perfect faithfulness. In other words, his eye isn't completely upon the honor of God. But he has some very personal interest here. So put the, be- the two best sons, the top two, take them, put them on the throne, and let them come and, and fight me with the chariots and horses. But they feared greatly, verse 4, and they said, Behold, the two kings did not stand before him. How can then we stand And the one who was over the household and he that was over the city, the elders and the guardians of the children, sent word to Jehu saying, We are your servants. All that you say to us, we will do. We will not make any man king do what is good in your sight. So these stewards are saying, No, we're not going to put anyone on the throne. We recognize you as the king. Say what you want and we will do what you wish. So then Jehu writes letters. Then he wrote a letter to them a second time saying, Well, if you are on my side and you will listen to my voice, here's what you will do. Take the heads of the men, your master's sons, come to me at Jezreel tomorrow about this time. Now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And when the letter came to them, they took the king's sons, slaughtered them, seventy persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent him, uh, or sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messengers came and told him, saying, They've brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So the gruesome task is over and now it's time to put an end to the executions and death. But no, not yet. Jehu is not through. So on his way to Samaria, he meets some of the relatives of Ahaziah. 42 of them, not heirs to Ahab, not of the house of Ahab. These are are heirs of Ahaziah, the king of Judah. And he kills each and every one of them. Again, this is more the ambition of Jehu rather than the command of God. Because after all, the way Jehu is looking at it, Ahaziah's mother is Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, and he hates Ahab. Anyone who ever had any connection with Ahab at all, Jehu is going to put to death. And so if you look at verses 12 through 14, he arose and departed, went to Samaria on the way while he was at Beth Echad. Of the shepherd, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, Well, we are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we've come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. And he said, Take them alive. So they took them alive, and then they killed them. At the pit of Beth Echid, 42 men left, and he left none of them. So, Jehu now is continuing to slaughter, to kill. And Jehu sees himself as full of zeal for God. You know, I, I, I taught in Sunday school this morning the nature of the conscience. And our conscience convicts us, con, convicts us and convinces us of many things. And Jehu, on one hand, was full of zeal for God. But it was not a pure zeal, and there was a lot of selfish ambition here. But yet he sees himself as fully, completely, absolutely fulfilling the charge of God with great zeal. 
So now next, the text tells us that he meets up with Jehonadab, and he bids him to come up into his chariot. And he says to him in verse 16, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Jehu sees himself as full of zeal for God. And so he made him ride in the chariot. Then he concluded his work. Verse 17, When he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah. No more heirs of Ahab, no more sons of Ahab. As God had promised, the house of Ahab has been absolutely destroyed. And he raised up Jehu to do it. And we're told that God is well pleased with the faithfulness of Jehu. In fact, we read in verse 30, The Lord said to Jehu, Because you've done well, in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. His zeal was a good thing. Our zeal is a good thing. In fact, there's nothing worse than a passionless Christianity. But zeal can be misdirected. And zeal can even be sinful. So let's look a little further in the chapter as we continue in the life of Jehu. Jehu was not through with his executions. You, you, at each point you say, alright, that's it. He's finished. You know, Jezebel's dead. He's done. No, not yet. Seventy sons of Ahab put their heads in a basket. Their heads roll now we've got to be through. But no, here comes some relatives of Ahaziah, 42 of them, put them to death also. And now there's some more heirs of Ahab, put them to death. And God says, okay, well done. And we presume it's over. But it's not over. Because it would seem that there are some worshipers of Baal in the land. Now, God does not tell Jehu to destroy the worshipers of Baal. Again, this is more the desire of Jehu, because Jehu hates Ahab. He hates everything about Ahab, and Baal worship was a, a characteristic of the house of Ahab, because Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who is the the, the queen or the, the princess of the king of Sidon, well, they're Baal worshippers, and she imports Baalism into, into Israel. So this is more Jehu wanting every influence of Ahab destroyed. And so we read in verse 19, well, verse 18, then, it's like, well, it's not over, then, Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. You go, what? Really? Well, no, it's just a ruse. He's saying this in deception. So now he says, summon all the prophets of Baal and all his worshipers and all his priests. Let no one be missing for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it in cunning, so that he might destroy the worshippers of Baal. And he does. He destroys every last one of them, and then destroys the temple, and to make it complete, he turns the temple into a toilet. Now, I hate to be too crude, but that's what the scripture tells us. Verse 27, they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal, broke down the house of Baal, and made it a latrine. Well, anyone who served in the military knows that a latrine is a toilet. And so they turned the house of Baal into a toilet. Well, we don't find 
as a part of the destruction of the house of Ahab that God commanded him to do this. But we do find in Deuteronomy 13 that this is proper to do. In verses 6 through 10, listen. God says, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son, or your daughter, or their wife that you cherish, or your friend who is at your own soul, if they entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the people whom are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, that is, your brother or your son or your daughter or even your wife or your dear friend, you shall not pity them or spare or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be fit first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of the people. So shall you stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to the house of slavery. But the question is, are Jehu's motivations sincere here? Well, you know the one that I quote often and I've gleaned much from him, Dale Ralph Davis. Dale Ralph Davis says, quote, Jehu then likely purged the Baal worshippers not because he was pro-Yahweh, in other words, not necessarily out of a zeal for God, but that he was anti-Ahab. He had more zeal in destroying Ahab than he had in necessarily honoring God. Eliminating Baal eliminated Ahab loyalists dissolve support for the Ahab family, and so would consolidate Jehu's power. So Jehu has a very keen eye upon what will best increase my own power and my own position. This is nothing else than another mark of an ambitious Jehu. So it's not necessarily out of a zeal to be faithful to God as it was a zeal for his own power and position. He's not necessarily sincere, and his faithfulness was not necessarily fueled by God's glory. How do we know? Well, because we know the rest of the story. Because we can go on and continue reading in the text, and it doesn't end here. And so the author is very careful to give us the true nature of Jehub's fragmented heart. Are we able to look at our own heart? Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Are we discerning enough to know our own heart? Now, Jehu has already said from his own lips, Come see my zeal for God. I am zealous for the cause of God. Oh, how I desire the honor and glory of God. I am doing all that God has charged me to do because I am a faithful servant of God. And God says, because you have been faithful to me, your sons will sit on the throne to the fourth generation. But the author tells us, but that is not the end of the story. Verse 29 However, that however can be a bad word. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, you understand Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The kingdom is divided after the death of Solomon. Solomon's son would have taken the throne, would have ruled over the entire kingdom, that Rehoboam was not a wise king. He was a foolish young man and ended up dividing the kingdom. Rehoboam would rule over Judah. And God gave the ten tribes, Israel, to Jeroboam. And he says, if you're faithful to me, if you serve me, they will be yours for eternity. 
Of course, Jeroboam was not faithful. He did. He raised up uh, uh, golden calves, led Israel into idolatry, so that later on, every time we read of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, we read Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who led Israel into sin. So then we read in verse 29, However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves which were at Bethel and were at Dan. We go, what? He was so zealous to destroy the worshippers of Baal? But he's going to let the worshippers of these golden calves live? So much for faithfulness. So much for a proper zeal for God. It was a partial zeal. It was only a zeal as far as it met his agenda and his ambition. But it was a fragmented faithfulness. We read in verse 31, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. Jehu's zeal was much like the zeal of many Christians. They are zealous in some areas, but negligent or even sinful in others. And yet they can become quite proud of their zeal in the areas in which they're zealous, uh, even looking down upon others who are not as zealous as them, uh, even criticizing others who are not as zealous as them, but their zeal is fragmented. And often their zeal is motivated more out of selfish desires and personal agendas and doing what they want to do rather than God's glory. It's very dangerous and we must be very cautious to know our own heart and to know, one, do we have any zeal at all? And two, is our zeal directed to God? And it is a true zeal. In other words, it is a zeal that's zealous in every area of our life and not a fragmented zeal where we pick and choose the areas in which we want to be zealous and the other areas we, go, we let go by the wayside. So Jehu reveals two problems that can pervert our faithfulness to God. So let me give you the two problems really quick uh, so that we can bring this to a conclusion tonight. First of all, Jehu's zeal for being faithful to God was actually a mask for accomplishing his own selfish desires. What do I often say? People always do what they want to do. And this is true of the unbeliever and it's true of the believer. We're to be zealous to guard our, our own hearts. Why do we do what we do? Everything we do should be done with purpose. Everything, you know, everything we do as a church, we should always step back and say, okay, why are we doing this? Everything you do as an individual, okay, why am I doing this? And Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever things you do, do all to the glory of God. And so, you know, your, your boss offers you a promotion and you, your knee-jerk reaction, yeah, I take it. But no, as a Christian, we need to step back and say, well, why am I taking it? You know, why do I need to take it? Would God have me to take it? What is my motivation for taking it? Is my desire to honor God in what I'm doing? You know, you get married. What about this person? Are you, are you seeking your, to spend your life with this person for the glory of God? Or do you have other motivations? Is, is it out of personal lust? Is it out of selfish desires? Is it because you want to have your needs met? Or... Is it an unfragmented faithfulness unto God where you determine in your heart, I am choosing this individual that we together might as one flesh serve and honor the Lord Jesus Christ with our marriage. And this is true with every area of life. Uh, an unfragmented faithfulness. So again, 
Jehu is doing what would best advance his own agenda. And so, I mean, so I mean, why did he slaughter the worshippers of Baal? And they, on the surface, we applaud. Yay! They're dead! But on the other hand, why did he do it? And what was his purpose? Now, there were godly kings who rid the land of idolatry and they did it with the right purpose and the right reason. We're going to be looking at one of these kings when we get to chapter 23. He's one of the kings of Judah and he was a king after God's own heart, Josiah. And Josiah also removed, this is verses 19 and 20 of chapter 23, Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord. And he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. All the priests of the high places who were there were slaughtered, on the altars, and he burned human bones on them, thus defiling these altars and rendering them forever defiled. And verses 24 and 25, Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all their abominations that were seen in the land of Egypt and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there is no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, with all his might, according to all of the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. A man with absolute, unfragmented faithfulness unto God. Jehu, well, yeah, he did away with the worshippers of Baal because the worshippers of Baal were supporters of Ahab and we don't like Ahab, so we're going to do, do away with these. But what about these golden calves? Well, the golden calves were produced by Jeroboam for political reasons, the reason he made them was to consolidate his kingdom so the children of Israel would worship the golden calves in Samaria without going to Jerusalem because he feared if they went to Jerusalem to worship, their loyalty might be swayed away from him to Judah. And so he says, I'm going to make new altars and new high places and new objects of worship so they will worship these. And Jehu sees these figures as that which he could use to help to elevate his kingdom. So he doesn't destroy them. They are just abominable in the sight of God as Baal. Yet he destroys the Baal worship and continues the, the golden calf worship fragmented faithfulness. He was not zealous for God. He's zealous for himself. Though we can be zealous for ourselves and be so blinded to it that we actually think we're serving God. That's what the Apostle Paul did when he had Christians put to death before God saved him. And he thought he was doing service to God. We have to be wise and discerning to know our own heart. We do everything with purpose and we should always judge. If I'm going to say people always do what they want to do, we should always say, but what do, why do I do what I do? People do what they want to do. Why do I do what I do? And that's a serious question. With everything we do, why do I do what I do? Why do I get up at this time in the morning? Why do I go to bed at this time of the night? Why do I eat the things that I eat? Why do I do the things that I do? And we should evaluate our life in this manner. Uh, I mean, there's nothing insignificant. You know, I, I know that we, we like to look at many areas of life as being what we call audioforous. And, and it is true that we have areas of our life that we could place in that category. Audioforous simply means morally neutral and there are morally neutral things in our life 
you know, do you, I mean, when you eat a banana, you know, is it holy to eat a banana or is it wicked to eat a banana or is it morally neutral? doesn't matter if you eat a banana. It is morally neutral. But on the other hand, we do everything to the glory of God, which ultimately means that nothing is neutral. Everything is significant. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever things you do, do all to the glory of God. So, I think too often, Christians are faithful as long as it meets their agenda. They'll be faithful to obey the Word of God as long as it is not in conflict with the other areas of life that they want to do. So it's, it's easy, it was easy for Jehu to destroy the prophets of Baal. That's easy, because Baalism is a part of the, the Sidonians and a part of Jezebel and a part of Ahab, and it's easy to get rid of that. The calf worshippers, that involves so much of the political power of Israel, not so easy. Not so easy. And so, too often, Christians, it's like they, they reach up and take the, the low-hanging fruit. But the, the fruit that demands reaching, well, we, we kind of set that aside. We don't put forth the effort. So, Christians can demonstrate great faithfulness as long as it's something they want to do. But if it's something that's difficult, then they make accommodations and compromise. You know, I read an article the other day. You know, we're, we're running into very difficult times in our country. And pastors need to be preparing their congregation to make hard decisions. Because we're living in an age in which the corporations, the ones that pay payroll and salaries... Uh, they're very much promoting the pagan agenda more and more. And it's no longer uh, you need to tolerate the pagan agenda. It's now getting to the point, no, it's not just toleration, you have to promote. So you have to be willing to promote the, the gay, transgender, uh, uh, you need to be willing to Promote that agenda. And if you do not promote the agenda, then you are not fulfilling your role as an employee of this corporation. And thus, we may have to terminate you if you're not willing to march in the parade, if you're not willing to fly the banner, if you're not willing to go through this day or that day and promote the agenda. You've got to be a team player, and if you're not a team player, perhaps you don't need to be on our team. So, do you become a team player, or do you say, I must obey God rather than men? It's easy to say that in principle. It's far different when that means you may lose your job. And so, these are the, the very troubled waters in which we are living. It's easy to be faithful when it doesn't cost you anything. It's very difficult to be faithful when it may cost you everything. Will you be faithful no matter what? It's all a matter of the heart, and our hearts are so fickle. You know, I'm always amazed at the difference between attendance on Sunday morning and attendance on Sunday night. And all that tells me as a pastor is it's easy to do what we want to do and it's easy to do what is easy to do, but it's more difficult to do what is more difficult to do. And so it may be easy to attend on Sunday morning, but it may be more difficult to attend on Sunday night and it may just be a matter of our own flesh that says, I don't want to, because we do what we want to do but we always need to ask ourselves, why do I do what I do? And why would I come to worship if it's the Sabbath day and if it's the Lord's day and if I worship on Sunday morning, why is it that I do not see the need to worship on Sunday night? Why do I do what I do? Unfragmented faithfulness. 
The second thing, remember I said there's, there's two items that we need to look here. Jehu's faithfulness was from an impure heart, even from an unregenerate heart. Jehu's heart was not directed towards the honor of God. It was not the new heart that characterizes God's people. Not like Josiah, whose heart was truly turned to God. Jehu, though it appears that he's doing what God called him to do. And he did destroy all the house of Ahab. And it did appear that he was zealous in doing it. So much so that he brings this young man onto his charity. He says, I want you to see how zealous I am. And he kills some more people. But his heart was not truly zealous for God. Verses 29 and 31 reveal everything we need to know about Jehu's heart. They reveal a heart that's little different than Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who led Israel to sin. Now, don't forget, Jeroboam, now remember, Jehu was established as king by the hand of God. God tells Elisha, anoint Jehu. Elisha sends one of the sons of the prophets, go to Jehu, anoint him as king, and charge him to destroy all the house of Ahab. So he's raised up by the hand of God, anointed by the hand of God, and charged by the hand of God. So was Jeroboam. So was Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. He too was established king by the hand of God. And God promised to give him the kingdom if he served God faithfully. But he did not. And the text tells us here, And Jehu followed after the sins of Jeroboam. Zeal is no substitute for Christian conversion. Now, zeal is a good thing, but zeal means nothing apart from Christ. No matter how zealous you become, no matter how religious you become, no matter that you, you, you take classes and schooling to learn how to fly a jet aircraft, and at personal risk you manage to commandeer the aircraft, and you're flying into the World Trade Center, and you sacrifice your own life because of your zeal for your religion, and it means nothing apart from Christ. Paul says, And if I give all my possessions to give to the poor, And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. But if I do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, it's nothing. It's vanity. It's worthless. If I do not love Christ. Some people are sadly substituting religion for a relationship with Christ. So that they will hear those dreadful words, Matthew 7, 21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We have a real problem today with Christians running here and there, hot and cold in their faithfulness to Christ, guilty of a fragmented faithfulness, doing what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it, without a serious contemplation to Christ. We must be always willing to examine our hearts Why do I do what I do? Is my heart's desire and my chief goal and the driving force in my life is Jesus Christ. To do everything for Him. He's the Lord of glory and my King. And to do everything for Him. Now, that said, 
There's not a one of us here tonight that does everything absolutely faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. To our own shame. There's not, a, there's not a Christian upon the face of the earth. But here's the glorious thing. That's why we need the one who is faithful. The one who is perfectly faithful in every way. Even in the midst of our sometimes fragmented faithfulness. You know, for us to say we don't have ever have fragmented faithfulness is to, is to say we've reached the point of perfection. And we have not. Every time we sin is a fragmented faithfulness. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Or 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So do not go to despair when you examine your heart and see, wow, I'm not full of absolute perfect faithfulness. And my faithfulness is often fragmented. Remember, we serve a faithful Savior. And so the, the, as we examine our life, we see that our purpose and our grand desire and our greatest desire is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart. And when we fail, the scripture says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ our Lord. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be full of zeal, always faithful, and may our faithfulness be unfragmented. But yet, Father, as we examine our hearts, we see that so often... Uh, the very things that we want to do, as Paul would say, are many times the things that we don't do. And the things we hate are sometimes the very things that we do. And it would be very easy to fall into absolute despair. And as the apostle cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? His conclusion and our conclusion, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So thank you, Father, for our gracious Master who continues faithful even in those times in which we are unfaithful. Thank you, O God, for your faithfulness unto us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.